When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi guys, I'm Amy Wright, and today I'll be sharing a delightful conversation that I recently had with Jimbo Mathis, a one-of-a-kind musician from North Mississippi. Back in March, Jimbo teamed up with his old bandmate, Andrew Bird, to release a new record called These 13, a record about the special type of human connection that can survive any distance of time or geography. As former collaborators in Squirrel Nut Zippers, Mathis and Bird's friendship dates back 25 years, and they decided to reunite to record 13 songs live to analog tape, singing and playing opposite each other right into an RCA 44 microphone. Jimbo shared great details about the making of the album and a whole lot more, and I can't wait for you to hear. So let's get to it. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. Jimbo, welcome to Diddy TV. How are you? Well, hello, Miss Amy. I'm so well. How are you today? I am doing well also. And now, are you in Mississippi right now or are you someplace else? I mean, I, everyone I talk to seems to be all over the place, so... Yeah, uh, no, I'm at Dialback Sound in Water Valley, Mississippi, the studio that we work out of down here. Is that in northern Mississippi, central? Just south of Oxford. Oxford. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so that's, of course, home of um, university, and uh, we're just south of there. You grew up in Mississippi, right? You grew up near Oxford, so you're you're close to where you grew up. Yes. uh, Yes, this is my region. Was your family a musical family? They were. There was a big pastime in our family. Uh, They weren't professional musicians like, you know, what I became and what you think of, you know, um, most of the time. Uh, They just did it for relaxation, for fun. They were good at it. And it ran in the family from the uh, my Scott Irish ancestors on my dad's side. So they were actually called uh, the Bird family and the Benzie family. They were fiddlers and singers. And uh, and they played at like the Brush Arbor churches back in the old pioneer days around here. You know, I'm talking the mid-1800s, 1840s to 1850s. They were singing here. And uh, so my father picked it up, and we had a lot of people in the region that played fiddles, banjos, basses. Um, I had an uncle who left a mandolin over at our house one night after a get-together. And uh, within, by the time he came back to pick up the mandolin, uh, I had kind of already started playing it a little bit, you know, when I was six years old. And um, then he let me keep it for a while. And so I was constantly surrounded by all these songs, all these great musicians, great entertainers, but again, not professional entertainers just for their own enjoyment. So more like out of the past, like social music, you know, it was almost like from another time. And so that was my background 
every weekend and all through the week when I was growing up. And um, it, it just, I wanted to keep it going into songwriting and other performing other aspects of it. So I branched out and did that on my own. Well, most people don't really realize how musical the South is and that there is, you know, and when I say musical, like everybody's playing an instrument, they may not be, <laughs> they may not be professional musicians, but they're either listening or playing. And that when you grow up in the South, there's a lot of those gatherings, family gatherings where either people are singing at church or you're playing some, some kind of, you know, jamming with some people. Um, you know, and I know I know that growing up, I grew up in Memphis myself, and uh, almost everybody I know played something or was learning something. They didn't become professional musicians, but they were playing an instrument as a kid, and uh, and it, it's just sort of it's sort of in there. And then also all the different types of music that you hear. Mm. And I absorbed all of that. You know, uh, I, I branched out from. What I grew up in was just the folk and gospel and blues, you know, repertoire of the deep south, you know, rural, rural deep south, you know. And so um, there would be a lot of hymns in there. Uh, my family wasn't particularly religious, so we weren't big churchgoers. But after a few uh, uh, drinks, uh, they'd all start, That's church. They'd, they'd start <laughs> playing gospel music. So started developing love for the blues and black gospel and black uh, blues, uh, you know, especially from the Delta in my region in North Mississippi. It's very prolific here, you know, so in the blues, you've got everybody, you know, just like uh, in the country and, and, and other fields, you have them all right here, you know, and so I started branching out into the blues very heavily, you know. Well, you were in an area where, of course, it's it's Nirvana for blues music, and uh, how lucky was that? It was accepted for a white boy to be hanging out with these black black dudes in the places they you know they took you to, you know. Um, as a musician, you kind of got a free pass. If you know a good musician with a good uh, attitude, you know, so they would look after you, make sure that you were shepherded through this uh, um, this tutorial, you know, this um, path going to the blues. So there's only one way to get to it. It's at the source. Um, but as a musician, I got a kind of a free pass, you know, to go and really learn from these guys and uh, not be excluded because I was white or they were black or anything like that. On the bandstand in the Deep South, it's one of the most uh, non-segregated places in America, you know. When you were growing up, were you classically trained or did you teach yourself? No, ma'am. Like I said, uh, uncle left a mandolin over at my house, you know, and I, so my dad showed me a couple of chords. So no, no, I, I can't read music or write music. I can write songs, you know, but not with the written notation, you know, so no, just a folk musician learned in the clubs and in the sidewalks <laughs> what was the first band you were ever in jimbo what was your first band i joined a uh, I joined a rock and roll cover band when i was in uh, high school in corinth mississippi and we just they did top 40 auditions for them and this was about 1983 and um 
they uh funny well funny story about that that's kind of all we knew to do and i was uh i was so excited to be singing into like a microphone you know and i felt like a real rock star you know <laughs> and so we were doing the hits that were on the radio it was called the end end and uh a great another great memphian and musician was in that band with me which is jack oblivion from the oblivions in memphis and he was in the end cover band with me in high school you know and we would do the dances at the county high school and the sock hops and stuff did you ever record anything with that band we did. We cut us a, a 45 hour, um, I think it was my drama teacher in high school, Miss Wade. Um, she paid for us the end to go to Memphis uh, and we cut a 45 at a Sam Phillips recording service when I was probably in 10th grade. And uh, that's before I, you know, that's when you just open up the Memphis phone book and look for a recording studio and like, he was there, you know, so I didn't even know who he was or the history of that part of music at that time, you know, but that's where we cut our first, my first record was 1983. You know, it's funny. I, it sort of reminded me of a story of my own that's similar to that. I was in high school and I had a kind of a hip drama teacher and he redid all the music to a Midsummer Night's Dream, but in sort of a rock you know, guitar sort of fashion. And he wrote all this music. He was a very creative guy. And I was in that musical, but they, they, he said he wanted to record all the songs. And we recorded them at Sam Phillips Recording Studio. And I didn't know either how big a deal this was at the time at all. I just knew we were going into a recording studio. And, and I wish I had really understood the moment a little bit better now, you know, then. You know, it took a while to educate myself. Music wasn't as celebrated. The Deep South music wasn't really as celebrated in the Deep South uh, then as it is now. So when I was coming up in the 70s and 80s, it really wasn't, um, it, it wasn't raised up like it is now. We didn't have the museums and we didn't have the historical markers about music and it, it wasn't, the tourism hadn't become in, as involved in it. And it was just more of a locally um, cultured thing, you know. Um, if you knew, you knew. But I had no idea of knowing that Elvis recorded in, in Highland Wolf and, and all these people in, in, uh, in Memphis, you know. Rock and roll was invented there and everything, who Sam Phillips was. So I had to educate myself over the years, you know, to kind of get caught up. Well, I think back then we were living in it and now we're. We can see it in perspective, but back then we were still living in it, I think. Yeah. And there wasn't that perspective that we have now and the appreciation. The education wasn't out there about it. So it's easier to find out now, okay, so you're driving through Holly Springs or you're driving through Memphis or you're driving through Clarksdale or Oxford or Como or any town, you're going to see a blues trail marker, you know, and if you don't know anything about the blues, you might stop and look at it and go, oh my gosh, okay. Uh... Little Red Rooster, you know, I remember when the Rolling Stones did that. I mean, we created rock and roll, you know, and so it's a lot easier to get the uh, to get the information. So along the way, I noticed there's something very interesting. First of all, I have to say, when I was doing some research about you, Jimbo, you've had some really interesting points in your life that you know, is pretty fascinating. And one, a couple of things I just wanted to sort of um, talk to you about because I just thought they were very interesting. 
One is you went to college to study philosophy. And so I was curious as to what drew you to philosophy. And, and is that something that you're still interested today? Is, did it stay with you or was it something you were just interested in then? No, it's been a lifelong thing, and it, it definitely influences my music, you know, for sure. But, uh, yeah, I studied philosophy at the Agricultural College, uh, Mississippi State. Uh, but m mostly I had met the professor. I was in a band, you know, so I was um, – I had gotten hired when I was 17. Uh, I moved to Starkville, Mississippi, and uh, that's where I en en enrolled in the philosophy program. But I, I moved there to, to play bass in a band, when I was 17 and um, and also wanted to study with this man, um, Mr. Murphy, but um, because I was interested in it from reading um, some books I had found. Um, uh, and um, it, it is certainly, I mean, I went on to, to teach myself uh, how to read Latin, you know, and study Latin for a number of years, you know, so I could better understand language. You know, f so philosophy, you know, gets you into deeper levels of thinking. It's good for a songwriter, you know. It's good for an em empathetic person, you know, to, that likes to think about those kind of things anyway. I didn't last long in school, by the way. I, I took all the classes I wanted to take with Professor Murphy, and then I, I quit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got out of it what you wanted to get out of it. That's the most important me, thing. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I've never had really formal education, but I've been educated by some great professors as well as some great musicians over the years, things I wanted to learn, like romantic poetry, um, Latin and philosophy. That's mostly what I sought uh, academic professors you know so when you got out of college what did you do i mean you you got you you got out and you're playing music are you touring or well did you i, I kind of had a dark night of the soul there i, I didn't I, I i knew there was a path that I, I was supposed to take i wasn't sure what it was i figured out at that time i had to start writing my own songs and i had to quit cover uh copying other people's songs so i was about 18 then uh, and so I just ran off in the uh, uh, Merchant Marines, you know, and I worked on the barges on the Mississippi River, you know, the inland waterways. It goes right by Memphis. And uh, just to get away for a while, digest, took my guitar, took a little recording four-track cassette machine, and I would, you know, work on these barges and then uh, start figuring out how to put together my own music. And I did that for two years until I felt like I was ready to come back out and to try again, you know. And that's when I moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And that's where I got my start almost immediately after I left the, the Merchant Marines. So when you were in the Merchant Marines, I would think that that's rich content for songwriting. And, you know, the people on the riverboats tend to be the underside of, of, of what we call society. You know, a lot of them are people that can't live on land. They just, they can't act right, you know. So it's better for them to just be out there trapped working, you know. <laughs> and so you get a lot of rough characters, you know. You got a lot of people that are hiding from things. I mean, a lot of honest people, too. I don't want to miscategorize them. But um, you're in shipyards and you're in, you know, down in the bayous, and so yes, it's a it's an incredible education. That was part of my education was being a deckhand, 
you know and that was a kind of conscious thing i decided to do because i didn't i wanted my songwriting to not be too in my head i wanted it to be physical i, I knew that i knew i wanted it to be based on experience not just wanted to be a need to write a song not just a desire you know and so i put myself in that situation you know to kind of go trial through fire and then when i came out i was i was ready i felt like i was ready to go to the next stage maybe find a town where they had record labels and they had venues that did like original music you know and that was chapel hill and that's where you started the squirrel nut zippers right it was just a few years after that uh, I started Squirrel Nut Zippers. So within probably three years of being up there, I had a record deal with them. And that, that was sort of a swing jazz band, right? It was. It was, very, it was based on a lot of the hist- research and history I was doing on American music, taking it back even past the blues into vaudeville and into things like um, cabaret and vaudeville and swing music, all the different styles of um, uh, of American roots music. So I guess you could say it is more jazz based, but there was a lot of blues and a lot of heavy Southern elements in it, you know, but a very unique thing. It's not like anything else. <laughs> so who came up with the name Squirrel Nut Zippers? Uh, that was some of my doing, you know, um, uh, when I, uh, I found out about that uh, candy that they made. You know, I drove a backhoe when I was starting the zippers. I was driving a backhoe in this little country town, um, and they sold these candies, you know, um, and I would buy them. And and uh, that's where I found out about the squirrel nut zipper candy. What kind of candy is it? What does it taste like? It's a little almost like a Mary Jane, like a caramel kind of candy in a wax paper. And it started in the... Around 1920. That's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, did you give them out at your shows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we actually we got the key to the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, for rejuvenating the old factory that was about to go out of business. You know, there's a family-owned business and uh, been around a long time then. It was on the decline, you know. I don't know if anybody's ever read The Confederacy of Dunces, you know, the novel. But the, it's yeah. like the Levy, Levy Pants Company in, in Confederacy of Dunces is what it reminds me of. <laughs> and so you, you rejuvenated the, the candy. I think that's a great story. I did. I did. So one of the reasons we're talking to you today is about These 13, which is a recent album that you did with Andrew Bird, who's an amazing you know, classical fiddle player. But the reason why I wanted to bring it up now is because... Uh, in the 90s, y'all actually met a long time ago, right? You met then in Chapel Hill or? Yeah, we how met, did you about, meet? Uh, about 25 years ago. Um, and he was in the Squirrel Nut Zippers. He was a big component of our records, you know, at that time. And um, he has, um, so we've known each other for quite a while. He was very much a prodigy, a visionary at that young age. He's a few years younger than me. And I already had a... a career going I guess you could say had the zippers going and we were drawing a lot of crowds and I made a big impression on him and kind of took him under my wing you know and uh, mentored him quite a bit uh, used his talents on my records you know many of our records and then we uh, lost track of one another for quite a few years 
Yeah, well, and around that time, I know that he was a part of putting out the album Songs for Rosetta, which I thought was a great story. Uh, give us the background of why you put that album out then and just in general who she was. Well, you know, as I as I was mentioning earlier, my own research into the going into the roots, finding out how to play uh, well, who Robert Johnson is, who um, Howlin' Wolf is, who Muddy Waters is, who John Lee Hooker is. I started figuring out more and more people were from Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is where my mother is from. It's in the Delta. And so all these names I just mentioned and, and others, Sam Cooke is from there. Um, and then I, I, doing my research, I've discovered a, a gentleman named Charlie Patton who was, uh, was recorded and he died in around 1934. And he's considered the king of the Delta Blues that first recorded and, you know, was very widely emulated. You know, people like Alan Wolf and others, you know, um, cite him as being the, the big man at that time. <clears throat> and uh, I come to find out when I'm in Clarksdale one time that uh, uh, the family in Clarksdale, I uh, was an Italian family. It's my mother's family. And um, they had a... A, a black maid that would come over sometimes like when all the people were there like it was like 15 of us in the family you know uh, packed up in this like 750 square foot house they weren't rich people but Rosetta was the woman that would come help with the kids when all the kids were there and she would help cook and it's kind of like a deal like you know how it is in the deep south when the blacks and whites are just right there in each other's homes I always considered her my Aunt Rosetta, you know. And then when I'm about 21, 22, um, I find out that she's Charlie Patton's daughter, you know, the blues man. So it was some, wasn't something she would have bragged about because it wasn't something to, be, to celebrate. She was in the Baptist church, you know. She was a church woman. She wasn't into the, the blues and the, the lifestyle that that... It's the devil's music. I mean, that's what they called it, you know. So you either had the church path or you had the devil's path. And that was what her father was. <laughs> so I won't know if she was ashamed of it. I just wouldn't say she didn't know to even ever mention it, you know. And so here's the direct tie, you know, in my own household there to, to Charlie Patton, you know. And that's what Songs for Rosetta was for me was a chance to celebrate her. And to also kind of try to find my own voice in Mississippi music, which was, to me, I knew it was going to be an interracial blend of music. And um, it basically gave me a lot of courage. And just being able to go talk to her and get her stories and, and, and spend even more time with her after that, it meant even something in a different way than it did before. It's that intersection, you know, it that intersection. Incredible. You know, it was incredible, you know. And here I am being a guitar player that already is studying her father's music and trying to figure out what his method was and studying his lyrics, you know. Um, they're so inventive and powerful, you know. He's a great poet, you know. But to her, he was just in the, blue, in the bootleg joints, in the gambling houses, in the prostitution houses. That's where blues musicians operate, operated at that time. So to her, it was probably somewhat ashamed, you know. Well, they were telling some of the most poignant stories about the South. Yeah, I mean, I mean Charlie Patton is one of the greatest lyricists of all. I mean, he had songs, you know, Joe Kirby. He would write songs about the local DA, you know. <laughs> you know, 
So it's almost like a bard-like thing. Like he, it's almost like a newspaper. You know, you're listening to stories about different people. You know, particular people. And Andrew, you know, and I both cite him as a big kind of mentor and rejuvenating place we go to when we want to just go back to the real root of what we both are about. It's like go back and listen to Charlie Patton. So when did you and Andrew reconnect about this project and what how how did that happen? He just reached out, you know, about two years ago and said, man, I've always wanted to make a duet record with you. And would you, you know, be interested in working on some, uh, you know, finding some songs and um, and I said, yes, of course, you know, and um, uh, we worked, we traded songs, you know, uh, just over like voice memos on on the phone. And uh, I ended up feeding him a lot of ideas, you know, that we ended up composing everything together. Um, but I fed him a lot of ideas and he sort of acted as an editor to all my writing because, it, it, you know, I've got so many songs. If somebody asks me for songs, you're going to get a lot of them. You know, <laughs> you're going to get dozens, <laughs> dozens of them. So he acted very much as an editor. Goes, I really like this, and I like this. And and uh, when, as soon as we convened in Los Angeles and just got together, it was just, it was seamless and effortless. You know, our voices and our instruments blended even better than they did 20 years ago. You know. And so it's really beautiful music. Phone. The whole record is just live in the room. It's before the pandemic. So you can hear us breathing and and sharing that space, you know, just around one mic, you know, just one big old RCA mic. And you can really feel that the breath in there. You know, I think it's quite healing now, um, you know, for what we've been through with our health, uh, our you know, our pandemic situation. Now, is, is it these 13 because there were so many songs you had to pick these 13? <laughs> well, it, it ended up 13, and then he asked, uh, because he knows I'm a big William Faulkner fan. William Faulkner is from this region. You know, his home is in Oxford, Mississippi. So he said, uh, you know, is there, is there any Faulkner reference we were deciding on the title? And then uh, I was just sitting there looking at my bookcase, and I was like, these 13, it's a collection of short stories, you know, that Faulkner put out. You know, it's his first collection of short stories. And so it was just that easy. Well, if you haven't, not you, but Rare if people haven't home. haven't seen Faulkner's home, it's a great tour. Roanoke. Yes, it's still there. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories from when I toured there was that Faulkner did not like air conditioning. And it gets very hot in the South. And when he passed... The first thing his wife did the next day was go out and get a window unit. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Well, he liked the humidity. It was part of his process, you know. That, right. That's not, that's not unusual uh, for like Deep South. Um, I know some record producers that really like to get their artists, you know, if they're, um, especially if they're from another region, if they're coming to the Deep South, he likes to get them someplace to rehearse where there's no air conditioning for, you know, several days just to get them, you know, sort of melted down a little bit, <laughs> get them in the mind frame of the, of the South, you know, so that'll just, do it. We'll cut the air conditioning off, act like it's broken, you know? <laughs> well, that'll, that'll certainly do it. Well, where did y'all record the uh, album? We recorded it in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. At what recording studio? 
uh, it was uh, called Sunset Sound Studio on Sunset. It's kind of an older, kind of creepy um, place that had been there a long time. And then we did some at the, um, in a, just a small room at the producer's house. Mike Viola is his name, Mike Viola. Well, and Mike Viola has, has produced many artists, including Ryan Adams. What was it about him that you chose him as your producer? Uh, he's friends with Andrew in, in Los Angeles. Um, so I, I don't really know. I'm not part of the L.A. scene, <laughs> as you can tell. Uh, really, so, Jimbo? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew knew him from out there and said, this is the guy we need for this quiet, powerful, but still wanted to be powerful. He said, Viola's the guy, you know, and uh, he was right. I was reading the lyrics to some of your songs, and one of them was actually about Hollywood and the homelessness there mm-hmm. and and how how it's such an affluent area, and yet there's really rampant homelessness, and it becomes so, it's just so there that you don't even notice it or those people anymore. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. I, I guess you're talking about uh, Poor Lost Souls. This mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was just my impression, you know, initial impression when I actually went out there and stayed a few days. I wrote that song, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. That's one I've had for quite a while. But as the record started to evolve, I thought, ah, this might be really good for Andrew being in L.A. and getting my initial impressions of it and just not to lose that empathy. But, uh, you know, going back to the old riverboat days and just the way I grew up and the characters I grew up, I gravitate towards the the underside of life anyway. I mean, I, I'd rather just be out on the sidewalks, you know, than in some, you know, fancy place. And then you know, the, the inspiration I don't get from literature and history, reading history, I get from being on the streets in the sidewalk, you know, and you get a lot of that as a touring musician and entertainer. Um, we don't travel in luxury, you know, I mean, there'd be, you know, so... You're on the street a lot, and I like to prowl the streets. I get a lot of my ideas that way. Um, but Andrew wrote the second verse of that is kind of looking from somebody in L.A. looking at the situation with fresh eyes or trying to not be jaded or callous or lose your empathy, you know, and maybe shut the door to some help you could bring someone, you know. It's a beautiful album, and it's just really extraordinarily done. And um, and the lyrics are beautiful. You know, you you both are so talented, obviously. But how did that work? Just from a collaboration standpoint, were you so you were each writing lyrics and music, or how did you? Yeah, how did you I, I would it? just send him the the germ of the idea. You know, as a, as as we got a little rhythm going, uh, I would just send him like a verse, like if I had, or if I had a great uh, chorus. Uh, rather than me sitting there and finishing it myself, uh, as I came to see, he could finish it uh, and then have a whole other perspective on what I'm doing. So I just started sending him less and less, you know, just fragments of, 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 a, of one thing was, all, I think, even just a couple of lines, uh, I think, was um, Dig Up the Hatchet. I think he, I just really had the title in a few lines, and I said, let's see what he does with this, you know, and um, so I started sending him less and less so he would respond, uh, with, uh, and, and complete the song. So you now most of them, I generated the idea, but then 
I just took my hands off and said, you finish them, you know. And it just worked out so good. You can't tell where one writing part starts and the other stops, you know. That sounds, sounds like it was the best way. Well, of course, you knew each other, so you knew kind of how you could work together. But uh, I know that you both have your, your own solo projects um, individually, but will you tour as a duo for this album? Well, we're going to do, I, I know Newport Folk Festival is our first thing we have on the books. You know, I think that's July, uh, Newport Folk Festival. And um, and then we'll see as things open. We'll see, you know, but I'm optimistic. I don't, I think this is a timeless project, so it will happen sooner than, sooner, sooner than later, I assume. Well, as a fan of the album, I have to say that I hope it's not the last album that you produced together because it was just beautiful. And these 13 is is great. I hope people buy it, listen to it. And we hope to see you out on the road soon when we can all be out on the road again safely. I sure hope so as well. I can't wait to see y'all, you know, in the clubs and the theaters and out on the sidewalk, you know. So (laughs) it'll be nice. I'll give you a big old hug. I'm waiting for it. So I'm only down the road, Jimbo. You can come give me a hug, okay? <laughs> Zoom hug is not a cool hug, man. No, it's not. It it's work, not the same. It. It's not the same. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us today. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with the album. And we'll we'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Amy. Appreciate y'all. And, uh, and we'll talk soon. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jimbo Mathis. Be sure to check out his record and get a copy for yourself or for a friend over at therealjimbomathis.com. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.